Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. Today, we are honored to have journalist, activist, author, Harvey Wasserman. Harvey, how are you doing today? Hey, Egberto, whenever I'm with you, I'm always great. It's great to be on your show. Hey, brother, you know, uh, I've been trying to get to you for the last few weeks to talk about the Supreme Court. What do we do? I mean, Roe versus Wade is just the start because when they're coming in in the next session, we're going to be going back to discuss some interesting things about states' rights. But let's talk about abortion first. What's what's going on? What do we do? Well, these guys, you got to remember, we're on the breakdown of having a dictatorship of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court believes it has a divine right to rule the United States of America, just like all those kings did, you know, back in medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and these people, you know, they, people talk about bringing America back to the 1800s. These people, these Supreme Court, I won't call them justices, whatever they are, judges. They come straight from the 1630s in Boston. When Boston was run by the Puritans, these people walked around in black robes. And they burned you at the stake if you were gay, for God's sakes. They, you know... Women were completely subservient. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. People of color were had absolutely no rights whatsoever. You know, the right wing in this country is not against the right to vote as long as you're white and have property. I mean, that's basically where we're at here. The, 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 the right wing in this country hates democracy. Steve Bannon is a classic and yes. Roman, a classic fascist. They, 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 they use... Like Hitler did, they use the trappings, the illusion of democracy, but they deny everybody else the right to vote and have only the people they want to vote. And right now we're at six votes, which is the Supreme Court, which is outrageous. There's never been a Supreme Court like this one. And they don't care about anything except their ideology. And I want to put one thing on the on the table before we go ahead. Alito and all these other judges talk about originalism. It was a big phrase with uh, uh, Scalia. Yes. And the real originalism, and I talk about this in my history book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. The real originalism in America is with the indigenous, for God's sakes. American democracy was invented by the Iroquois and the other tribes that were here for 20,000 years before the whites showed up. So if you want to talk about originalism in American law, you have to start with the indigenous. And there was no question of a woman's right to control her own body in indigenous society. The opposite was true. Women ran the tribes. Most of the American, North American tribes were matriarchies. The women ran the show. Now. They let the men be chiefs. And it's a, I, I saw a documentary, and I love this, 
um, um, they asked a woman from the Iroquois named Audrey Shenandoah, why was it that if the women ran the tribes and they ran the houses, they raised the kids, they <laughs> ran the gardens? I mean, that was the whole deal, right? So they asked her, why is it that if women run the tribes, the men are the chiefs? And she <laughs> said, well, it makes them feel important and it gives them something to do. <laughs> so, you know, the bottom line is we are actually, and I write about this in my history book. People can write me for my history book at solartopia at Gmail. I'll send you a PDF, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. The bottom line is that the biggest transition in human history right now is the transfer of power from men to women. Mm-hmm. Women are running the show, taking over, and the men, the men can't handle it. It is amazing because I mean, if you take a look at what occurred, and I know we're talking about abortion right now, but I want to I want to hit a bit on on the pandemic. If you take a look at the countries ruled by women, our Jardine from uh, from New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, Germany's uh, Merkel, and you you look at all how the women handle the pandemic. It was completely, entirely much better than yeah. men who had to test their testosterone for everything or try to make a buck before right, they could right, do right. anything. Well, you know, I was drinking a lot of bleach like Donald Trump, and, and I don't know, that's why my hair is, is all white. So, you know, um, you're 100% right. And women are, are you know, we hope are less, less warlike, but the reality is that the uh, not only the majority, almost two-thirds of the college students in this country now are women. Right. More, more than half I'm married to a lawyer. More than half the lawyers, in the, the, the people in law school are women now. And all over the world, women are taking over. The men can't handle it. And so Roe v. Wade is uh, uh, about suppressing women. And But, you know, in, in the indigenous, as I say, a woman, if she had an unwanted pregnancy, she didn't go consult with a guy. or She just took a bunch of herbs, and that was it. They controlled their own bodies. It was never a question. Not even it was never a question during the writing of the Constitution. It never came up. The word abortion doesn't appear in the Constitution, even among the white guys. And I want to make another point very clearly, Egberto. You got these Christian, these evangelicals, white evangelicals, men who are running around calling themselves Christian and saying that the United States is a Christian nation. And I will tell you, in addition to the indigenous who course, we're not Christian. The writers of the Constitution were not only did they not say that this was a Christian nation, they're very clear saying it was not a Christian nation. They weren't Christians. I know. I, they, you know some were atheists, some were human. I mean, it's amazing. Well, I'll, give you, I'll give you the rundown. I'll give you the lineup here. George Washington considered himself to be a Christian. Uh-huh. In one pocket, he had a Bible. And in the other pocket, he had a flask. He was a serious <laughs> alcoholic, George Washington. But he was very clear on, um, on tolerance in America. Very clear this was not a sectarian country. He wrote a letter to a synagogue in Rhode Island saying, look, you know, you practice your religion. You're more than free to do that. We are not a Christian nation. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. John Adams was a Unitarian. Mm-hmm. His wife, Abigail, uh, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president, Samuel Adams, the great revolutionary, 
They're all Unitarians. Right. Um, uh, James Madison. Um, that means they believe more or less in a divine being. Nothing to do with Jesus. They liked Jesus. Thomas Jefferson wrote a very famous book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It was published in 1820. And he basically took the, um, the life of Jesus and he wrote it out and he subtracted all the miracles. And he subtracted the resurrection. And he basically said, look, Jesus was a really cool guy. He did all this great <laughs> stuff. I really like Jesus. He was a progressive. He believed in human rights. He believed in women's rights. But he was not divine. The most important of all of them was Benjamin Franklin. Right. Benjamin Franklin, who's the great intellectual. The scientist, God, yeah. Godfather of, the, of America. He, he, you know, he was a deist. He believed there was some kind of divine force that created the universe and then just left and let us, you know, work our stuff out. And if you know, and, and, and Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin's apprentice, you know, these guys didn't believe in, neither did Abraham Lincoln, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lincoln actually wrote a pamphlet uh, uh, saying that the, the resurrection, come on. You know, so, you know, this, this idea that we're a Christian nation is utter nonsense. And, you know, these, you're starting to see now, Egberto, this is very important. And I, only in the last month or two, there is a serious decline in the evangelical movement. Yes. The, the numbers have dropped by half. And it is now the oldest, you know, um, a sect. And not only is it dropping in numbers, but it's shattering. Mm-hmm. A lot of the evangelicals who are looking at January 6th and looking at Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, for God's sakes, are saying, Whoa, come on. This isn't Christianity. You know, I mean, uh, Jesus, well, you know, Steve Bannon sits with a picture of Jesus behind him and he, on his, his podcast. And he says stuff that would make Jesus cringe. <laughs> you know, turn the other cheek. Love thy neighbor. Come on, will you? I mean, Jesus may, may well have been black himself. So, you know, uh, there's a real earth change going on. And, it all turns on Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade basically, and the, the whole abortion issue is who controls a woman's body. It's as simple as that. Do men running a government that's not democratic uh, can, can tell women what to do with their uterus? You've got to be kidding me. And so that's what this is about. And, you know, the, the, this Supreme Court, you know, what nobody's talking about, this Supreme Court is going to go after Social Security. Oh, and, yes. And Medicare. You know, you know, a few a few years ago, I wrote how minority rule was going to come aboard, uh, come about. And, and well, it all had to do with the Supreme Court. Right. In that, you know, when we talk about, OK, we're because, look, America is becoming more progressive. And we are going to eventually elect more progressive people and we're going to pass progressive laws. And the only way for the corporatocracy not to have the progressive laws infringe on their theft is going to be to have a Supreme Court that deems all those laws unconstitutional. Right. And then it is for us to decide if we are going to accept the rule of the Supreme Court stating that what we the people want is unconstitutional. It's amazing. Yes, and nobody's talking about 
the t- the t- the two big items, which are Medicare and Social Security. Yes. And I know that these, this court, when it gets done with gay marriage and gay rights and all the social issues, you know, and, and banning books and destroying public education and, and, and all the poverty programs, they're going to wipe all that stuff out. And then they're going to come after Medicare and Social Security and nobody's and unions. But you know what is interesting? You know what is interesting, though, um, Harvey? I, I, I am. I'm pretty sure they'll come against Social Security. I'm pretty sure they'll come against union. The corporatocracy doesn't want Medicare because Medicare is for old people, unprofitable people. Right. So unless they want old people to die, just die, you know. Uh, well, that's, you know, that the, the, the Republican um, a form of health care is get sick and die quick. That's my buddy, um, uh, Congressman. Uh, what's his name? Cory Booker. No, no, no. It's not Booker that said that. Oh. It's a guy out of Florida. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, I, I, I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's running again, Alan Grayson. Uh, Grace, Alan Grayson. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, get sick and die quick. But yeah, the reality he, is that, but you said the important thing. And this is what my history book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History, says, points out. There's a small detail here. The boomers, like me, we're on our way out. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the gen the millennials are 85 million people, and the Zoomers are another 30 or 40 or 50. Yes, the reality is that the majority of the country was born after 1981. Right, and the majority of the country now is no longer particularly racist. Right, they, they don't care about gay people. For God's sakes, who cares? You know, I mean. They don't care. They like gay marriage is fine. There's mixed race has been going on for, you know, I taught, I taught college for 15 years, 14 mm-hmm. years. And somebody asked me, I was teaching about racism. He says, well, what happens to racism when everybody's intermarried? It's gone, man. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. And I got it. You know, there's a funny Clarence Thomas wants to give it all the progressive uh, civil rights, <laughs> just all the progressive. Supreme yeah, decisions except one: the love interracial of, marriage. Interracial marriage, <laughs> and I wonder why. Yeah, right. And I noticed, by the way, he's always against freedom of speech, except there was one decision, the Playboy decision. Explain. He, I didn't know about that one. What happened there? He defended Playboy. You know, because obviously it's his favorite magazine. Oh, yeah. You remember uh, uh, Ding Dong or something like that? With, something uh... like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these guys are going to come at every right and every liberty. But the good news, and you said it, Egberto, is the majority of this country is progressive. And that's the big difference between Hitler's Germany and America today. I am have- so glad you said that, Harvey, right. because I need and I want you to repeat that. I need a lot of a lot of our listeners. They are so depressed after that six, three decision and after realizing that uh, well, five, four for uh, killing Roe versus Wade. But after, you know, I, and I'm telling them, don't be depressed. Vote. Don't be depressed. Go out there and run. Don't be depressed. You are who, you know, when, when Obama said. You are who we're looking for. I'm not even talking about Obama, but that phrase is such a powerful phrase. There, you just gave me the numbers. Millennials plus Zoomers. Come on. You guys got it. 
half the country has been born since 1981. There you go. And, so and they therefore, totally progressive. They don't, you know, church, the right wing church is just falling through the floor. And, and, you know, and all these people run around calling themselves Christian. They're about as Christian as Genghis Khan. So you have people, you have an elite in this country that would do everything Hitler did if they could. Yes. But the difference is that Germany had no democratic tradition. In America, we have a democratic tradition. And we also, Germany was in no way, shape, or form diverse. Right. You had white people, and then you had whiter people. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, but we are, our, our saving grace is our diversity and our Bill of Rights. And now, then, Harvey, look, there, there, before we get into, uh, there's going to be, a, it, it's a, I think it's a North Carolina decision that has to be made. I think North Carolina is, it has a case in front of the Supreme Court where they want to relegate back to the states with no interference from the Supreme Court, neither state Supreme Court or federal Supreme Court, that the legislature has ultimate domain or dominion over any election, the legislature. Right. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, they're gerrymandered. They're not, you know, they're set up for minority rule. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we had in Michigan a referendum and in Ohio to set up good districting procedures. In Michigan, it's worked. In Ohio, the Republicans have completely shown that they hate democracy and they're doing everything to subvert it. So what the Republican strategy is, is to turn control of our elections over to these terribly gerrymandered districts, um, state legislatures. That's a problem. And the other problem we have, and you and I have talked about this, is the corporate Democrats. We will win every election where the money goes to grassroots organizing. That's what happened in Georgia 2021. Yes. And then they turned around the Democrats and they did the opposite and they blew it in Virginia. Yes. In 2021. If we can get the Democratic Party, the money that goes to the Democratic Party to go to grassroots organizing, even in Texas, especially in Texas, Beto O'Rourke could win in a landslide if he spent every money penny he has on grassroots organizing. I agree wholeheartedly, and that's what I've been preaching for so long. In fact, I, I you're going to laugh at this one, but I actually put on Daily Coast that it is time for contributions to go to the grassroots of our country, the grassroots organizations and independ- independent media. And you know what? You know the attacks that I got? Anybody who says not to send money to the DSCC or the DCCC, you are no Democrat. You are trying to hurt the party because you're trying to not give. I'm like, why do we give consultants 15 and 16 and $20,000 to give advice about people these people don't even know? And they always lose. Yeah, they don't know, but they lose because they don't. Harvey, you know the people. You are on. I watch you go to. Uh, these organizations that are dealing with people all over from all over the country. I watch you at those Zooms and talking about how do we get these things. These consultants are too high up in the stratosphere to come down and meet the people that are actually on the ground doing work. Right. And and we've seen Andrea Miller and Ray McClendon, people from the NAACP and the Center for Common Ground. When they get a dollar, they make use of it. 
People go door to door. Right. Register to vote. These consultants in the Democratic Party throw millions of dollars at advertising and it goes nowhere. It what? doesn't work that way. You know, there, no. there are all these, uh, you know, people know touch the flesh is much better than trying to get a, a, a message on national TV that most of the people you're trying to target aren't listening. Right. And what we got to do is have grassroots campaigns. All the money should go to the grassroots. And the corporate Democrats, look, they had eight years of Clinton, eight years of Obama. The only thing we got was the ACA, which was fine. Clinton did nothing Marginal. as a president. Obama, if Obama had gotten us out of Afghanistan in the very beginning and done some stuff after the big short crash, Trump would have never been president. Not a chance. You know what? You know what is interesting, Harvey? The biggest, and I, I saw this, believe it or not, the first year of Obama's presidency. I don't know if you remember how powerful OFA was. OFA was an org, a grassroots org. Obama for America is what it used to be called. Then it became Organizing for America. But they kept the same OFA. But I remember the power in OFA because here in Texas, red state, I'm in a red area. And OFA came into this community. And OFA was so active that I had Republican neighbors that were ready for the change. And then some of these Republican neighbors were the same ones who became part of the Tea Party. And the reason why is they left a vacuum, Harvey. Right. And they left a vacuum, Harvey. Right. And I talk about this in my people's spiral of U.S. history. People should write me Solartopia at Gmail. I love it. I'm going to put that in the blog because I want people to get your book. And I think I, I, I have a copy. I hope I got a copy, but, you know, I have to read. Re- and people should come on our Zooms. You're on our Zooms every Monday at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern time. We had 110 people uh, this last week. We talk about these issues. But the bottom line is the corporate Democrats have not delivered. And you wonder why uh, um, working class, class people go with Trump is because Clinton and Obama didn't give them anything. And Hillary wasn't going to deliver any uh, uh, you know, substantial uh, benefits to working people. And, and, that, and uh, actually, Trump promised to get out of Afghanistan. Of course, he didn't. But, you know, uh, so we have to take over the Democratic Party, Egberto. We've got to use that money for grassroots organizing. We have the people on our side. You know, you look at, they call us socialists. Okay, I'm in favor of Medicare for all. 60% of the American public or more supports Medicare for all. Abolish student debt and homelessness and poverty and, um, um, you know, destroying the environment. Go to the technologies that really work. All the stuff that progressives support in this country, that the right wing calls socialism, is supported by a majority of the public. And we have earned it. We have earned it. The wealth that the wealthy has made on our backs you know what's interesting um harvey um i I want to say because i'm glad that you framed it as corporate democrats because you know right now it it is in vogue to blow up on mansion and blow up on cinema right right they are currently just the whipping persons right because if they weren't blocking some of the stuff and build back better 
I can guarantee you I could call five other Democratic senators that would have found a way to block it, just like they found a way to block the, 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 the public option to the Affordable Care Act when we had 60 votes. Right, right, right. And they didn't bother to make D.C. a state. There you go. And, and have, we had 60 votes. Yes. And here you have uh, more than 700,000 people, including my sister, my niece and my nephew and their kids. In Washington, D.C., more people than Vermont or Wyoming, and it's not a state. And here the Democrats are screaming at Manchin and Cinema. we'd have 52 Democrats if they had bothered. And and Clinton could have done it. Obama could have done it. But here's the deal, Harvey. Believe it or not, and this is what I tell folks about neoliberals, right? The neoliberal Democrat and the neoliberal Republican they are just here. Here's what I always tell my audience. If you have the right and the left, I call them the neoliberal Republican or the neoliberal, uh, the neoliberal Democrat that are running both parties. One is the left rail and one is the right rail. What can you tell me about those rails? They're against the public welfare, but they're moving in the same direction. So right. why would we think they are different? If the rail, even if the rail is turning a little, a little bit, it's move. It's one rail system going in the same direction. But here's the great irony: the great revolution in in energy technology in this country, mm-hmm. which would create the jobs and would allow the public to control its own energy supply, would flourish if we actually had a free market in energy. If yes. they would force the nuclear plants to be um, uh, to compete on the open market and coal. And oil and gas, which are completely priced out now because solar and wind are better. And not only that, we don't, there's not externalities are not counted in the price of gasoline. It's ridiculous. Me and Milton Friedman would be on the same page. (laughs) Harvey, we're coming up on time. Harvey, on, so on Supreme Court, I got one last question. Okay. Because that's what, that was our major topic here. Should we go ahead and rebalance the court, given that it, it's a stolen court? Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and these guys, these, these, the, all these guys lied in their, in their Senate hearing. Mm-hmm. They flat out lied. They should be impeached. And there also need to be age limits on the court. You know, 65 is fine. Maybe 75. I don't know. But the court is completely out of control now. It's the worst court in history. We do not need a dictatorship of six Supreme Court uh, members who are not justices. And you'll notice, by the way, that the three liberals now are all women. You know, you got... I uh, noticed that, yeah. You got a black woman, you got a Jewish woman, and you have a Hispanic woman. So maybe we should make it mandatory all future judge uh, people on the Supreme Court are women. Actually, you know, I, I've been... I, I want the next, the next appointee has to be another progressive woman. I think it's time. Okay. And I don't want anybody complaining because the court had men on since its inception. No, I, I, except for Sandra Day O'Connor, who served for quite some time, yeah. and OB, uh, RBG for a couple of time. Uh, I want women to start right. taking control. And I want a woman got, to win. Just remember, and, I, and please write me for my book, People Spiral of U.S. History. I'll send you a free PDF, Solartopia Gmail, and I'll send you the link to our Zoom calls. Egberto, we love having you on our Monday Zoom calls. But the bottom line is this. Just remember this. 
We are the majority. We support Social Security, Medicare for all, unions, saving the environment, free education, and homelessness, poverty, and hunger. All those things are supported by the majority of the American people. What we want in this country is majority rule, for God's sakes. What a concept. What a concept. Harvey Wasserman, author, journalist, activist, extraordinaire. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Egberto, you're the greatest. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Politics Done Right depends on you to keep doing what we do. What do we do? We make sure to keep, number one, the internet seeded with blogs and information to counter the right and to present what progressives represent for the benefit of us all to everybody so that it's not misread, misled by any other entity. We make sure and populate that internet with blogs, with videos, with all these other things to make sure that we are informed and to counter everything that you normally hear that, that are lying at the right. We also make sure to create articles in, in magazines, articles in newspapers all around the country to ensure, again, that our message gets out there. Last but not least, we also write books. As you see it, Class Warfare, the only re resort to right-wing doom, How to Make America Utopia, are two of the many books that I've written on these issues. So please support us in one of many ways. Numero uno, you can support us at PayPal, either one time or monthly. Go to politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal. You can support us on Patreon. That is politicsdoneright.com slash Patreon. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us by becoming a part of our YouTube channel, going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, or you can support us in many other forms that you can find at politicsdoneright.com slash support. Be sure to visit our store, politicsdoneright.com slash store, and get our books at politicsdoneright.com slash books. A few years ago, uh, two professors from Princeton, Professor Alan S. Binder, uh, Princeton economics professor, as well as Professor Mark Watson, they came out with the definitive report. They looked at, I think, 12 different presidents, six uh, Democrats and six Republicans, or maybe eight of each. I don't remember exactly how many. And it, they did it sequentially, right? And it turns out that the economy does substantially better, out of the margin of error, better under Democratic presidents than it does under, than it, under a Republican presidents. Now, they looked at all kinds of factors. And when it comes to under Republicans, we had certain things like sh certain types of shocks. So they had to discount for those. So they are saying Republicans just got unlucky with some of these shocks, right? And that's understood. But they said that only explained about between 42 and 60% of, of the delta, the two points or so better that the economy does under Democrats, bet under Democrats. So it's only, it, it only has, it comes for, for a few. The professors, after they've found that the, the, the luck part could only be attributed between 40 and 60%. And by the way, I don't even call that luck because the rest of the world knows who's president of the United States. They know how to act based on who's president of the United States. They know how to spend 
based on who's president of the United States. And if they think things will go better, of course, an economy which has some psychological uh, factors in there as well would do better. And that's the reason the economy does better under Democrats than Republicans, not only because of policy, but because of expectations and all of that. The professors prove that. You know, their, their study, their analysis is, is great. It came out with the correct results. The problem is when it came for them to write a conclusion, they decided to edge. They didn't want it to seem partisan. So they said, well, we can't explain exactly why it is that Democrats do, do two percentage points. That's huge. Two percentage points on, in the aggregate over Republicans when they are in charge. I want you to listen to the interview between one of the professors and Chuck Todd way back yonder. And then this, uh, this is a part of a blog post that I wrote with some excerpts from the actual analysis that they've made. It's clear to me the reasons why. I am sure these very intelligent economists from Princeton, they also know the answer, but they also know that they want to ensure they don't seem too partisan. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. According to a new uh, analysis paper by economists Alan Blinder and Mark Watson, it's not policy or politics. More often than not, they say it's simply dumb luck. And most of the time, it ends up favoring the Democrats. The paper examines how the U.S. economy fared under 12 presidents, all the way back to Harry Truman. What they found was that generally, Democratic presidents were in charge when the economy was doing the best. You can see Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, and Clinton stand out on the chart. Interesting to note, Carter's number are probably better than you realize because GDP growth was good at the time. His problem, of course, was inflation. Now, Reagan's numbers are probably worse than you remembered. Don't forget the start of his presidency was clouded by a severe recession. Now, overall, the economy grew at a rate of more than 4% under Democrats and 2.5% under Republicans. It's a pretty dramatic difference. But why? Well, Blinder and Watson looked at a number of possible factors, and they came up with three big ones. Number one, oil shocks. The spike in prices and the early 70s hurt Nixon and Ford. And a threefold increase in prices did huge economic damage under George W. Bush. The second big factor, productivity. Surges in productivity helped Kennedy and Johnson, while a drop in productivity hurt Reagan. But the paper concludes, quote, these look a lot more like good luck than good policy. Now, the third big factor is simply consumer confidence. But the paper argues that may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, quote, consumers correctly expect the economy to do better under Democrats and then make that happen by purchase, purchasing more durable goods. So, in fact, uh, Blinder and Watson described all three as luck factors that seem to happen randomly. So what about the policy? What about defense spending? What about Congress? The paper finds they may play small roles, but that they are more or less insignificant when it comes to determining why Republican presidents seem to get the fuzzy end of, eco of the economic lollipop. But the researchers admit the three luck factors can only explain about 60% of the gap. They say the rest remains, for now, a mystery of the still mostly unexplored continent. As, a, as somebody who studies these things as a, in, in your belief in statistician, when, does, when do you think this trend 
trend is a fact, is a provable fact. Because sometimes you look back, and I always say that even we've had 57 presidential elections, and you know what? That's actually not enough examples to say this is always the way it happens, this way or that way. Now, always is too strong, but think of it as coin flipping. At some point, if you're flipping a coin enough times, you may discover it's an unfair coin. It's not actually coming up 50-50. So the question is, how many flips do you actually need before you uh, get can reach a conclusion like that, a probabilistic conclusion? And we could. I mean, we there are standard statistical tests for that. And the likelihood that this large gap, you showed it on the first graph in the set mm-hmm. piece, was happening purely by chance, like coin flipping on a fair coin that just didn't come up 50-50, was under 1%. So all right, that's good enough for that was good enough for us. Good enough to put it in the uh, for 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 Princeton. All right, sir, Alan Blinder, thank you. Very interesting report, and I, I bet you there will be more research built upon it. Thank you very much. Now, again, I I listen to the professor, and it's a bit upsetting because he says. If it were just a coin flip and there, uh, it's only 1% that says the results that they got, that the economy does better under the Republican president, under, under Democratic presidents, it somehow can be attributed to luck when it's something that happens all of the times, which would be saying that luck is always on the side of Democrats. The professor is smarter than that, but you understand that he's watching his is right flank. After all, he doesn't want to get on the negative side of, of, of one political party when one has to say the economy always does better under Democrats. And yes, it's policies. A policy that favors the average American citizen, even in the com- current capitalist economic structure, because of the speed of circulation of money and who you are biased for, the American people, that will give you a more vibrant economy. That is how economics work. These professors know that. And their conclusion said that. Or rather, the results of their research said that. Now, when it came to expressing the conclusion They did say it's not chance. Yes, the economy does better under Democrats. But maybe it's luck plus something else we don't know. Hmm. Of course it does better. And it does better because of policy, middle class centric policies, better on one side than the other. Not as good as it should be, but better. Today we have the honor of speaking to Dr. Anand but I always call him my millennial doctor buddy. <laughs> How you doing, Anand? How you doing today? Uh, I'm doing uh, okay. I have COVID and I'm trying to recover, but I'm taking the pills. I'm feeling a little bit better. So but, you're taking uh, Paxlovid, right? Yes, I am. I am. I got it for uh, oh, $6. It's not bad. Well, actually, you should have gotten it for free, but you know, you're a doctor, so maybe they, they charge you anyway. But here's the deal. Um, before we even get into some of what I want to talk to you about, you had this interesting conversation at, I think it was at a restaurant covering college. And since we hear, you know, uh, since we talk about college here and Pete, the debt that people are in college here, give me that story about this woman who found out 
in Zurich, in in uh, what what town? It was Zurich, Switzerland. Switzerland. Yes, yes. seven hundred francs per semester to go to school. That's it, and that's not even for school. That's for books and yeah. room and board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in Switzerland. I took a walking tour and uh, there were some Americans there and there was a family from Massachusetts. And uh, uh, the uh, tour guide was telling us, you know, that the number one university in continental Europe is ETH Zurich, which is the uh, technical college, which is Google's biggest office outside of California is actually in Zurich. And uh, she says, well, you know, education is public. It's state. We have no private universities in Switzerland. We uh, charge 700 francs a semester. It's not for tuition. It's for books and, and room and other supplies. Uh, and uh, that's how much school costs. Uh, let me, not, let me stop you for a second. Exactly what is francs in dollars? Uh, so usually it's like uh, one franc is a dollar ten, but right now it's about equal. Okay, so, good. Yeah. So, so $700 has to come out of somebody's pocket who wants to go to college. Yeah. And they get and, room and board. Yes. And then she says, you know, I don't know what it's like in America. I, I heard it's three, four, five thousand dollars. And, like, and, and I was like laughing because I, I was like, no, we wish it was three, four, five thousand dollars. And this lady who lived in Massachusetts is like, oh, oh, but you must be paying so much in taxes to, to pay for these things. This, this is very, uh, uh, very cheap. And I said, well, you either pay for it in taxes or you pay for it in the poverty of young people. So there's, you pay for it either way. So you can make young people poor or you can pay it rationally. And then she says, oh, or their parents can pay for it. And I said, yeah, not everyone has parents and not everyone has parents that can and will afford it. And it's not normal to have dozens of colleges that charge $60,000, which is what Boston is um, in the world. That's, that's not normal. So she didn't really uh, care for that explanation, but um, you know, I had to stand up for the regular Americans and not the uh, very rich Americans who get to travel to Switzerland. But you, you, you know what is so funny it, that how easy it was for her to come out of her mouth that, Oh, if the kids don't pay, the parents will uh, not realizing that most, I mean, we, we, we already made the fact that 80% of Americans couldn't handle a $400 incidental imagine that and you have a person traveling to europe who here's a good thing that we need to export to the united states and she says oh well the parents can do it we're export no no i I disagree Alberto. export export free higher education was invented by america the first public high school in the history of the world is boston latin which is 400 years old where Benjamin Franklin dropped out of. America invented free high school, okay? In 1900, the United States was the only country where people were routinely going to high school. That's why we have basketball. You know why we have basketball, Egberto? No, I don't. Because we had all these teenagers who were going to uh, high school for the first time, and there was no sport for them to do in the winter up north. So they invented basketball. So there was something to do. And that's why basketball has a long history. It was invented in Massachusetts and it moved to Kansas and Kansas, uh, a famous coach, I can't recall. And it was a cold weather sport for kids to do. That's why we have these gyms. And that's how you have uh, gyms throughout uh, uh, America, which is why basketball is able, you know, I'm from uh, Beaumont, Texas. We have a famous basketball player, not from my high school, but from the other school in my school district. And it's universal. Access to basketball is universal in the United States. You can be an NBA player literally for the Boston Celtics and be from the poorest high school in my hometown. 
But, uh, you know, if you want to be an actor or an engineer from the poorest high school in my district, that's not going to happen. But you do have universal access to basketball. <laughs> hey, but you know what is great, Anand, is that um, that th- that what you said, we invented so many things and the other people seem to have perfected it because now they they their kids get educated. Google builds their biggest second largest plant out in Zurich in a country that's much smaller than ours because they have an educated population because people can afford it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. And I had to tell people this. So I was like, yeah, we, the university of Texas where we both went was $50 in 1970. Mm-hmm. It was cheaper than $700. Let me tell you when I came to the States, right. I, 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 you, while you had in-state tuition, I started at out of state tuition. When I went to school, the people in state was paying, they were paying $4 per semester hour. When I came, I was paying, $40 per semester hours. That was back. That's I'm an old man. That's long time ago. And that was, uh, let me, let me tell you, that was 10. In other words, you paid 10 times the amount the in-state person paid. Okay. It is just amazing. And now, you know, it's, it, I imagine now it's, you know, what I paid for as a, a out of state foreign student is what they pay now plus more as in-state Texas. It's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. No, I, I agree. I agree. But, you know, um, you, you've, been, uh, you've been out now working in Louisiana in the medical, you, you, you're a doctor out there and you're starting a new field. What you've seen, how, how has our healthcare system from what you've seen, what you've worked with, gotten over the last, let's say, few years that you've started practicing? Uh, there's so many problems with the American healthcare system. It's not even easy to answer because um, we had a recent person who became a faculty member here on a visa and she had only practiced in New Jersey and California. And now that she was in Louisiana, she was shocked because she never worked in an area that was underserved. Like the number of doctors was underserved. Right. So, we have a lot. So when you're in a place like, and not just Louisiana, but most of Eastern Texas, like if you're not in Houston or Dallas, but you're in the Eastern part of Texas, there's not enough doctors. And what happens is you have mostly people seeing nurse practitioners or nobody uh, uh, out there. So I don't think, I, I, I mean, I knew it was there as an issue when I lived in Cleveland and in, in other places, but now I'm in Louisiana. I see very acutely that the absolute number of doctors living where they need to live is very, very limited. That's even before you get to health insurance, cost of drugs, cost of uh, this and that and the other. But just physically, there's not enough doctors in the right places. And I think that's totally um, unknown. And I would say you're worse off being poor and rural than being poor and urban. That's okay. that, medically speaking. Medical. Now, it, it is amazing because um, now that, what that means is when you need to make an appointment for a doctor, again, you, first of all, using the emergency room is always a last resort. And that's what people use as first resort because they don't have health care. But um, it, it, what you're saying, though, is that people then now, even in this capitalist health care system that is supposed to be great because it's private. If you call a doctor, you probably have to wait for several weeks before you can see one people are of such varying education levels in this country that you have people like this woman from Massachusetts who who has mental access to all of these things. And then you have people who don't even know that certain of these specialties even exist. 
even in uh, a bigger city in Louisiana, which might have all the specials, people wouldn't even know from a smaller town to be referred to that specialist. Even the doctors may not know, you know, the inequalities are just uh, absolutely massive. Uh, even before we get to even the payment system, which is again, unfair and crazy. Now here's another one that that's very interesting that uh, I don't know if you know, one huge difference is in Louisiana, historically the government has owned a lot of the hospitals. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So um, because it's French, there was a charity hospital system. So charity in New Orleans was very famous, but under um, Huey Long, the government owned several charity hospitals throughout the state. They owned in um, Pineville, Shreveport, Monroe, New Orleans, uh, Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Yeah. So they had a state, and it wasn't a county hospital system like you have in Texas, where only Bentob in Houston and, and whatever. It was a state hospital system because those towns were too poor to support it. So the state built them. Bobby Jindal became governor and he sold them uh, to uh, uh, private companies. Uh, but the thing was, nobody was going to see these patients who were on Medicaid. So say you're on Medicaid and you live in North Louisiana, um, for example, uh, and you need to see a rheumatologist, there's nobody to see you in 100, 200 miles. Like the geographic barriers are huge. Until recently, there was no Medicaid dermatologist north of Baton Rouge. So that's two thirds of the state had no access to a dermatologist. They hired one guy and he's completely overworked. He had to like close his schedule. He needs to hire multiple people. That's how busy he is in Shreveport. Um, so that's, that's an enormous issue. Now, one thing that I did. Wait, but let, know, me, let me see if I understand you correctly. Bobby Jindal, he went ahead and sold hospitals that otherwise would have been able to take care of those people is what you're saying? So the government directly of the state of Louisiana owned these hospitals the, uh, in the quote, I mean, this is Louisiana in the bigger cities. I mean, right. the, city, the, the towns are microscopic out here. Okay. Right. What is interesting is most of the parishes, which is what they call counties here, right. still own a small hospital. Okay. And in that way, you probably are more served in a rural parish in Louisiana than in Texas. Because pretty much every little parish owns, I mean, it may be a Band-Aid station, so it may not be that great, but right. the parish directly, indirectly, or through some sort of nonprofit corporation seems to own a, a parish hospital in almost every parish. The larger hospitals that are worthy of being called a hospital were owned by the state. There was like five to 10 of them. I can't tell you how many, but he sold them and um, it ended up being a big corruption of privatization because the uh, contracts, contracts would have to be signed with a private company and they would manage it and basically lawyers and people. And when the governor changed to the current governor, he changed the contracts to different uh, uh, hospital system from New Orleans. And now they're running things in a very for-profit manner, but they are supposed to be taking care of the traditional indigent. population. Yes, yeah. the indigent population. So, yeah. But they don't. Now th th that is sad. So I mean, so what what you're saying is really no improvement over these last few years. It's just simply has gotten worse, and for profit has entered its tentacles even further into what was was a, was a, a pretty good public system. Yes, I mean, uh, yes, because the idea that Huey Long had uh, eighty or a hundred years ago was basically at the time before the Great Depression. The only medical school was Tulane, and it was private. 
And he invented this idea that I'm going to create a government hospital with an attached medical school, which is LSU. And that hospital is going to be learning research and implementing it on the people of Louisiana. So it would be a public hospital with a public purpose, with a public medical school. So research, science, service all go together. Um, so it was the best medical education for the people, for the many, not the few. Uh, that was the idea. That is amazing. Now, anyway, now my friend, you've got COVID and you're home and you can't move and you just have to quarantine for the next 10 days. I know you're probably going crazy, even though you're on Paxlovid and all that good stuff. Let me ask you this. What's your thoughts on COVID these days? How are we managing it? Are we, what's, what are your thoughts? Do you think it's going to be with us for a while? Is it going to become a cold? What, where are we headed? I don't know. I mean, they keep saying it will be, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, because really there are some people and I'm not an expert on this and I've, I've seen so many people change their tune. I think everybody's become a politician in public health. I don't know who to believe. You know, there were countries like New Zealand and Australia who were doing the Chinese zero COVID policy, you know, and uh, um, that would be one very severe approach, but it doesn't affect your day to day life uh, when it's working. I I don't know. I don't know what to think Um, with the number of mutations that keep happening in a globalized world. Is there a solution short of a zero international zero COVID solution? I don't know. Will it eventually moderate and not be as deadly? I, I don't know. Long COVID. Well, any virus can moderate to either become less or more deadly, right? You don't yes. know which direction they're going to go. I know. But, but historically, you know, these things would die down because there wasn't that much travel. Right. You know? But now there is. And um, I was just listening to a podcast about polio. And uh, apparently yes. they used to shut down pools and theaters in the, in the summers yes. in the 1950s. Um, I then I heard about um, hand washing didn't become common in American culture until the 1919 flu epidemic. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. But one thing is for sure. Um, it is said and, and you'll like this. Do, do you know the origins of capitalism come out of the uh, come out of a pandemic? I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's said that when the Black Death occurred in the 1300s um, in England, so many people died that they had to start paying people instead of having them being like feudal serfs, right? So right. you pay people in the Middle Ages. Well, right, because people had to, you, you couldn't get them otherwise. You couldn't get them because they die. And, and so there was a labor shortage, like now. People started asking for money, more money, like now. And it led to the end of feudalism was the Black Death. So wars and pandemics uh, have always changed the world, uh, uh, well, going well, let's, hope, let's hope that we start getting into more of a collective as people don't only say we want money, but they start to say we want the company who we are making things for. Right now, when that happens, that will be uh, that will be the beginning of my what I wrote about my utopia. You know, that that's when that comes. Anyway, Anan, uh, we got to get out of here. <clears throat> so as usual, you know what I always ask you at the end, and that is. Tell me something that you want our audience to know that uh, we don't actually know or that we should know or enlighten us with something that occurred with you on your visit to Europe. I think you had somebody tell you, why do you not like America? Which what you're just saying is, no, they they are doing a great job here in these parts of Europe. Maybe we should start emulating them. 
I, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, well, I, I'll tell you an interesting story, but I, I do have one classmate of mine who did OBGYN and, and uh, she settled in Germany. And after Roe versus Wade, she finally filed for German citizenship. She says, wow. I can't go back. She's like high risk uh, obstetrics. I can't come back to Texas. I can't come back to Missouri. So, um, yeah, I have some friends thinking about emigrating, which I, I think that's the, the new news I've heard. A lot of progressive minded people are thinking about moving uh, from the U.S. So it's um, I think uh, some changes are afoot. That's uh, that's, you know, I mean, this we're doing everything necessary to lose our best minds. I tell you what's interesting. I interviewed a guy. I think he's in Norway Mm -hmm. and he left the United States because of our healthcare system. And he his his kid got paralyzed and got much better in in the healthcare system in Norway. And I, I ran that story and that story went viral all over the world, actually, with this guy who told the ills of the American uh, medical system compared to Norway. And it, it is amazing that the things that we're doing, whether it be Roe versus Wade, whether it be for profit, hospitalization and medical healthcare, there's a lot that we're going to have to change. And it's people like you and I who stay here, progressives who stay here, that's going to actually get this change done. Anand, go ahead. Oh, one more thing. Um, I haven't looked into it too much, but I saw in the Wall Street Journal that Amazon bought a medical practice. Yes, they did. So we are looking at direct corporate slavery of doctors. And I was telling somebody that once they've squeezed the poor, which they've done forever, then they squeeze the lower middle, then the middle. Now they're going to squeeze the upper middle. And then the last two things that the capitalist system wants to squeeze is eat the last seeds of growth, which are education. Okay. In Texas, they're calling the, the these politicians are calling the uh, uh, teachers groomers and they're just ruining the reputation of public education so they can privatize that and eat those seeds. And then the healthcare system, they're trying to eat the last seeds out of that because of those are the only things that, any capitalist with any brains understands that those two are essential to create the workforce you need to run your companies. But when you start eating even the seed corns, then you've reached peak neoliberalism. So, Dr. Anan Bhatt, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Don't forget, folks, support the show at politicsdoneright.com slash support. politicsdoneright.com slash support. I hope you enjoyed the program. But we got to get out of here. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics and Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.